So you've decided to send yourself to the principal's office. This is the greatest work that there is to do. It will have the greatest impact, I believe, on building the next public. Now your mission begins. If you're very clear on your own personal mission statement of what hill you're standing on, then it becomes easier and it's student-centered. What challenges lie ahead? What is the most culturally relevant strategy? Will you be prepared to take on those challenges? When your why is clear, your what has more meaning. Your mission is clear. The work is never done. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Become an education leader. It didn't feel like we were teaching. It felt like we were learning all together. Accept the challenge. It's what you put into it. Where can you be the biggest agent of change? Welcome to A Matter of Principles, Episode 2, Challenge Accepted. A podcast from the School of Education at Edgewood College, dedicated to the advancement of principals, school administrators, and education leaders. Join our panel, Mike. We all make mistakes. The thing is, try not to make the same mistake multiple times. Jennifer. I remember that moment when you realize that the power is in empowering others. And Lalo. The students come with that passion to address some of those inequities, some of those justices. Along with their host, Dr. Tim Slecker. We're talking to the potential future people out there who are thinking, I might want to be a principal. Dean of Education at Edgewood College as they talk about their journey. I remember that moment when you realize that the power is in empowering others. Their experience. We all make mistakes. The thing is, try not to make the same mistake multiple times. And their drive. It's about looking at what is it that ignites the energy within our, our future leaders. To be leaders in education that make a difference. This is a matter of principles. Well, challenge accepted. And now your host, Dr. Tim Slecker. In the first episode, we talked a lot about making that transition from teacher to leader, whether it's principal, whether it's director of instruction, whether it's director of ed leadership programs, that ripple effect. And that just really came across strong. And any more thoughts on that before we move on to the next topic? I would wondered how many people thought about that because of how strong that was. And in fact, I went and did some searching and the ripple effect of ed leadership, people write about that. Yeah. When we left it. It's something that I reflected on for, you know, for a while, and it generated other conversations with some of my friends that are principals. We talked about just our journey, mm-hmm. and, you know, I had a I had a beer and we talked about this, and it was it was interesting how many differences, but similarities that were there. And similarly, we was talking to some um, current students in the program mm-hmm. about like their reasoning to wanting to go into a principal, and they said the same thing, like they wanted to do the, the effect at the larger scale and be able to impact more people. But we did talk a little bit about that um, hesitation that some people have when they're like, oh, you want to be a principal? And they're like, no, 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 I don't want to do, I don't want to work with all the other administrative work that has to be done. Right. You know, it's funny. I remember the day that I figured out that there, I think there's a book and I cannot remember who wrote it, but it was, um, it's called Leadership as a Subversive Act. So when we're talking about the ripple effect right now, I think it's that I remember that moment when you realize that the power is in empowering others. And to me, that was the, or that is the subversive act uh, related to leading. That it isn't about grandiose actions that a particular leader takes. It's about the work that you do with other people to help empower them to lead and to proceed in the areas that they are passionate about and skilled in. So I think as we even think about the future of leadership, the power comes from identifying those opportunities with the people that are around you to be able to move forward with the important work that we do. Resources are tight in education, and there can only be so many people that sit in those positions that are stereotypically the visionary positions 
positions. Uh, the real work, the subversive work happens from the people that are boots on the ground next to the kids working um, face-to-face with the families on a regular daily basis, empowering them, being able to see the opportunities that they have and the potential that they have in working with families, in working with kids, in moving strategy and moving results forward. That, I think, is the ripple effect involved in leadership. That is the leadership as the subversive act. We're talking about this largely because we're talking to the potential future people out there who are thinking, I might want to be a principal. And that ripple effect was powerful. But I think what you just said, though, Gerardo, is what about the challenges that principals, educational leaders face day to day? Mike, challenge today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Challenges? I, I don't know. I mean... It's one that I always think about. I made my bed, so I sleep in it. I rarely complain about stuff, but challenges, time. Okay. Right? Time pulled in many directions because you have, you're responsible for students, staff, and community. And that triad, sometimes they're competing mm-hmm. against each other. And understanding, you know, for me, you know, I have 1,700 students, I have 200 staff, and then an infinite number of parents. Everybody's priority is their number one priority, and it can't be my number one priority. So I have to figure out how to juggle those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think time is probably the most. And then I didn't count my own family. Right. Uh, and so I got to figure Oh, you out. have your own family, too. I, I do right. have oh, my geez. own family. That's good, though, also to hear. I mean, you time the balance between family, between the professional obligation. At that professional obligation, students, teachers, mm-hmm. community members, parents, you name it, right? And all those things. So time and balancing that. Harada, what do you think? I thing for me when I think about challenges is I think about all the energy that people have and wanting to do different works. So I was thinking more about like the resource and the allocations Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out like how there could be uh, so many things that we could do. How do we start a new initiative without having to put like more pressure on the teachers, for example, or how do we continue building on the community partnerships that we have to be able to continue? So... So when a student in your classes that is, you know, taking on this this challenge challenge to become a principal and actually puts that question out to you, um, I mean, how do we how do we answer them? I'm sitting there. I'm a brand new student, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, it's like, well, Mike, you just told me there's not enough time in the day to do this job. How do you come back and go, no, no, no? It's interesting. At uh, my last class last Thursday night, the last 15 minutes of the class. We just started talking a little this bit. This is a class you, you're currently teaching right Cur- now to future principals. Yep. Okay. And we started talking a little bit about challenges and, and prioritizing. When we talk about like the challenges of time and you get in what you put into it, it's prioritizing what needs to be done now and what can be done later. Mm-hmm. And you have to have the confidence and the, the trust that you're, you, can, you can make that decision, mm-hmm. right? And it's important to have a group of thought partners to sit down and talk to them about so you learn because we all make mistakes the thing is try not to make the same mistake multiple times that's what we talked about and it was 15 minutes and it didn't have anything to do with the curriculum we were wrapping up the lesson students they could have left but they wanted to hear it right so we just can't we kind of talked for 15 20 minutes just about that well there you go student you know potential student out there (laughs) listening um our faculty are willing to stay after class even (laughs) (laughs) so for me i think i was thinking about like how do you become intentional about like the i think similar going off the priorities and how do you spend if you have limited resources or if a certain amount of resources like how can you maximize those resources or how do you think about where those resources can have different impacts and so it was just thinking about like how do we invite the community 
so the, the students and the parents and the families can all kind of learn about what's going on at the same time. And then bring and, that, though, then back into your classroom of future yeah. principals to talk about that. I, you brought it up, and I waited for it for the second time now, resources. I think people going into you know public schools, it's tough. How do you deal with a budget? How do you make budgeting decisions? Is that a challenge? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, right now... I mean, you have endless supplies of money, right? Yeah. Okay. No, we don't. No. We don't. Hey, if you're very clear on your own personal, the mission statement of what hill you're standing on, then it becomes easier and it's student-centered. And from there, then it, it rolls out. I'm doing my budget right now for next year's um, teacher allocation, staff allocation. And there's a lot of individual meetings with different teachers. It's also, you know, data-driven, looking at course requests. But for me, one of my biggest things is trauma-informed mental health supports. Where do you see that in a school budget? You don't see that in a school mm -hmm. budget, but it's on me to try to figure out how can we provide that because the ripples that that has on the actual learning and the engagement connections between staff and students. I talked to my current future principals right. that you have to think about it as if each one of those are your own child and what would you want provided for them and how might you be able to do it. I like the way you talked about that, though, too, You're, that that hill, that mission that you mm -hmm. have, because from that, you know, as a strong leader, as opposed to an administrator that just doles out the budget as a leader, you have a conception, a vision and a mission, which I think would be very powerful in helping you then disperse the budget in particularly when we're looking at student learning. And so the leadership as a subversive act, how challenging is it to be subversive? <laughs> now that I know how important it is to empower others, it's really hard to be subversive. <laughs> because actually, the more um, the more obvious you are, I find the more uh, people might be skeptical at first when I approach them about helping to lead and to move forward with particular particular uh, initiatives or focus areas. But when you actually talk with them about what it is that I'm thinking about or what I see in them or how I uh, have noticed that they have a passion for something or a particular skill set, and when I name that and then talk about how that can help us move strategic focus forward, people are more willing to listen. Maybe the subversiveness, subversiveness has happened uh, long before that, while I was letting them continue to move forward with something that I saw as being leadership and then going back and pointing it out. Once they hear that, once they see that, it, it becomes a little bit easier. So, I mean, subversive, we talk about social justice as being like the frame of this program, you know, culturally relevant pedagogy, linguistic diversity, special learners and stuff. But subversive? Well, it was interesting because as I was hearing Jennifer speak, I was thinking about like the work that you have you do with the students and kind of like thinking about their own leadership roles and that kind of and again when we're talking about students you're talking about students Edwards, sitting in your classroom yeah. who, are, who are looking for leadership credentials correct that okay. they're trying to is um, they're trying to figure they're looking at their schools and trying to figure out where to what what things are working, what things are may not be working, what things that they want to see in a different change. And it, as Jennifer was speaking, one of the things that I, was going through my head was this notion of the students come with that passion to address some of those inequities, some of those justices. Well, because these are teachers, large, I mean, 
almost exclusively, right, mm-hmm. that are thinking about adding on a leadership credential, whether it be a principal, whether it be a director yeah. of instruction, whether it be, you know, director of people services, all these. So they are coming with experiences of watching. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So they okay. come in from being having their teaching background, their leadership background at the school level, at the classroom level. And I think that it's, it's powerful to also get engaged with them and see about like you have your own vision, but then they also have their vision of what they want changed and what are some things that they would like to address. And for me, I was, I was reflecting on that idea of walking along with them as they're going through that mm-hmm. process to be able to unpack what is it that they want to see in, in the school or what is it that they want to change in the schools that I feel like was a great takeaway for me in terms of thinking about how do we do this ripple effect. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, you're nodding over there. Yeah, I was thinking that what is leading, it's about fanning those flames of passion, those pieces of not to take it in too crazy a direction, but it's about looking at what is it that ignites the energy within our our future leaders or the current people that are working within education and, and helping them to see that they have the ability and all it takes are learning a couple of critical strategies and then you can go crazy in terms of making change and um, helping to impact positively the outcomes for our students uh, in education today. Well, and the other thing that I would say is also thinking about, Mike mentioned, like the mission and the vision, but then also like how do all of your decisions align with that mission and vision? So budget is one of them, but also we're like where you dedicate your time is another way of thinking about it. And I think these are all decisions. These are all different conversations that we bring back into the classroom. So Mm -hmm. now I'm going to take that mission and talk about this more particularly too around the program attributes that make up the Edgewood program. When we talk about culturally relevant pedagogy, when we talk about linguistic diversity, special learner skills that we need to look at, you know, issues of, Mike, you even said it's socioeconomic issues that face this out. In other words, inequities. Mm-hmm. I'm a future principal in your classroom. I mean, how do we address this concern of inequities? That is the key, understanding. I think myself is that getting to understand the needs of that community and then truly understanding the historic inequities that students and our community has faced, understanding that there's no simple answers, uh, there's no adaptive answers to it. There's a lot of technical possibilities, but unless we are willing to make changes, adaptive changes, nothing will ever dent that. In my past experience and opinion, um, we have leaders or administrators that have attacked issues just in a technical sense mm-hmm. because they've seen some success on this. When you're dealing with real people and real life issues, you're wasting time and you're actually making it bigger. You're, you are harm, doing more harm than good. And so coming back into that is that I think being able to work and teach and to reflect on adaptive practices with what current affairs are going on that's where we make the difference. Mm-hmm. And is it? that's when you tie in the CLRT work, right? That's where you tie in this because now you're having real tangible, adaptive strategies on how to approach this. Mm-hmm. I talk about a lot, ivory tower reality. And there is a connection between those, but you can't live in, bo- in just one. Culturally relevant pedagogy. Well, I was, as you were asking that question, I was thinking about how that notion of inequities, equity, culturally relevant pedagogy, culturally and linguistically responsive practices, kind of like how I've also been thinking about the curriculum that we have across. Cause, yeah, because I mean, that's, you know, you said, and, that's why I hired you, was to come in and make the changes to this curriculum that yeah. takes it just from licensing principles to make it culturally relevant, yeah. linguistically diverse 
coronavirus and really focus on a social justice yeah. mission. And that was your job. So, yeah. you know, so now Mike's, you know, all of our faculty are trying to breathe life into yeah. that. But Well, and I think that for me, the way that I think about it or I conceptualize it is how do I put that into the curriculum, the content itself? So some of our courses, supervision of instruction, for example, one of the things that I was thinking about, what does it mean to be culturally or linguistically responsive? I was thinking about, well, what does that mean to supervise somebody who's supervising ESL teachers or who's supervising um, cross-categorical teachers then? And That's special education. Special education, right. yeah. And so for me, it was about first naming it and being able to put it in the curriculum across the different um, courses. So it, it, curriculum and instruction is the course that Mike and I taught. We definitely brought that in. Um, supervision of instruction, 631, we were thinking about then what does that mean to supervise somebody from a culturally, linguistically responsive framework. Um, the principalship class also has that incorporated. One of the things that we're working on is with our school business administration, what does it mean to do an audit for equity? and looking at your resources and your allocations through an equity audit type of program. And so I think that for me, I start with the curriculum, but I think the second part is what we were talking about with the ripple effect, also having the teachers in the program that are also uh, bringing in their own lens into what does it mean to focus on equity, focus on equity, focus on um, culturally and linguistically responsive practices. And have you guys figured that out yet? How do we how do we do this in the class? <laughs> no, but we had a lot of fun and at least laying foundation on it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was, and I think that it, it caused the engagement. So many more people wanted to participate and ask some real questions. It wasn't a sit and get. It didn't feel like we were teaching Felt like we were learning all together, and we're seeing that yeah. like this semester with class. Pat and I are, are doing the supervision class, and we're really focusing on types of feedback. And it's it's hell, man. I'm going back and I'm using some of the stuff we're talking about in class. It's reminding me I need to do it. Uh oh. Yeah, it, it's it's fun. The I instructor mean, of principals learned something and went back as a principal and used and what they used learned. It. Yeah, that's <laughs> a novel idea, but it's fun. You know, it is. It's been, it is something that I look forward to every week because I know I'm, I think I'm helping them, but I know they're helping me. Culturally relevant pedagogy. Mike talked about it. Gerardo talked about it. In special education, what does that mean? Uh, It means the same thing in special education as it does in any educational context. I think where it manifests itself in special education is when we begin to look at the demographic of who has been identified within our public school system as being students that have disabilities uh, and really having those, when we begin to have those hard conversations about when we don't understand multiple cultural experiences and perspectives that now make up our experience uh, within our country, when we don't understand that, we mark it as something that is different, something that is less than, and that manifests itself as a disability. So the challenge, I think, becomes thinking less about how we can title something as a disability and focusing more on how we can make sure that the core experience for all students is a global experience uh, and a relevant experience. And I really think that is the work of education, regardless of whether we call ourselves a specialist uh, in special education or a specialist in you know elementary education or secondary education. Also thinking about the individual and what the individual needs, thinking about culturally responsive assessments or linguistically responsive assessments as so you're even trying to identify does a student need support from special education or is it a language issue? And there's different ways of thinking about even just how to 
look at the student themselves as individuals to be able to respond to with both their culture and their language. And I feel like either, as, as Jennifer said, within the special education or in education in general. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think as leaders, it's our responsibility to help to shape the, the or change the mindset about I teach content to I craft an experience for all of the learners that are in my classroom. And therefore, our obligation becomes more about universal design and less about teaching a, a list of facts that can be Googled. And also challenging the deficit thinking model of yeah. different students as well. And I feel like that's where it's, it's another common area that can be applied to all education, not thinking about what the student cannot do, but rather focusing on the strengths and what is it that the student is bringing to the classroom? What is it that the parents are bringing to the classroom? What is it that the community is bringing to the classroom and to the education as well? And I feel like that's where that overlap also happens between equity, social justice, and culturally and linguistically responsive practices. The next step now, what we're doing here with this podcast and what we're doing with the students in our programs here at Edgewood in Leadership is how do they take that step and lead for culturally relevant, for linguistic diversity, for learner diversity? How does that manifest itself in Jennifer's classroom at Edgewood? Because I'm, I, I want to know. I, I want to know why I want to be in your class. So I was just thinking about how we started the class uh, this last semester. And honestly, we spent that very first class getting to know who we were in the room, knowing our why. Why was everyone sitting in the room? What did people feel were their strengths and what were their hopes in terms of coming together as a professional learning community. And in learning about who was around the room, I was taking copious notes about what they were hoping to gain from and learn from the class. And it became really apparent that the class needed to be a place where we could do a lot of consultancy, a lot of problems of practice, Mm. and have a lot of open dialogue and share experiences and expertise around the table, which I felt and then heard at the end of the course was a really positive thing because that is what leadership is. It's about building your network. Problems of tomorrow, we we can probably guess the the problems of tomorrow, but the problems of, you know, three years from now are just starting to germinate. We don't exactly know what the next Momo is going to be. I mean, but, but there's always something new and and you have to have a network to be able to brainstorm and problem solve and work that stuff through. So uh, from a relevance perspective, and honestly, I think that when, what is the most culturally relevant strategy? It's knowing your learners and meeting them where they are with all of the experiences that they have and pulling that into the room and building then the content from that foundation, from those perspectives. I was nodding when you were talking because I feel like when you say, how will the students know how to implement it? Mm-hmm. I actually had a student who called me out and he's like, okay, I understand the theory. I understand what what it's behind it. I understand why there's inequities, but how do we fix it? What do we do about it? <laughs> well, <laughs> Here's the recipe card. Here's the, reci- here's the recipe to fix cultural inequities. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. No. But at the same time, I think that for me, that was an awesome experience to say, okay, now let's go ahead and talk about the praxis. So then let's talk about now you have the theory. What does that mean for your, your what you do on your everyday? What can we do to begin to even analyze how does that context affect your own school? How does that affect your own environment? Basically, the student, by asking me that in class, he was opening up that conversation about, 
about now that we've talked about those inequities, what are some things that we could do? And we couldn't have a magic bullet because each context was different. For this particular school, they might be focusing on this particular part of it. And I feel like those moments have been also the authentic moments in the classroom yeah. for me. One of them said, I don't want to throw you off your, your teaching plan, but I have this big <laughs> question. And I was like, those are the best questions because... One, you're engaging with the material and we're also modifying the material as we're going along because of your needs. Yeah. And so responding to those needs and being able to take those needs and build on those needs in the following week has been, I think for me, one of the most impactful moments that I said, no, you're not messing my teaching um, agenda. <laughs> well, I was laughing because uh, at, the, at the very, um, one of my yeah. final classes, uh, <laughs> our final times together, someone shared, it's that I was trying to remember and I was looking actually to see if I had my pocket guide with me, but one of the the members of the class shared with all of us the teaching tolerance guide, uh, pocket guide for disrupting, for being an ally. So it's like how to disrupt uh, conversations, and it was right around the holidays, and so we were all anticipating opportunities <laughs> to be together with perhaps family, where, where we might we uncle. might hear some things, yeah. right? So, but it was, I mean, I think when you have when you begin to build that community of consciousness, that's then yeah. where um, we share the tools and the strategies with one another because there isn't the recipe card. Every mm-hmm. context, like you said, is going to be different. It's about learning the f- processes that you work through with teams and the look for to make sure that you're disrupting inequity. Yeah. The class that I was co-teaching with, Mike, uh, with um, Jamie, one of the projects was, Mike mentioned the data-driven decision-making, mm-hmm. is how do we take the content that we're teaching in the, in the, at Edgewood College and we have the students apply it to their own context. Mm-hmm. And so the students had to bring in their own data from their own schools and then ask these um, questions around equity, questions about what is the data telling us, what is the data not telling us, and what are the different types of approaches that we could do to be able to think about what is working for our students in our particular context that they have as well. How do you combine data-driven and culturally relevant pedagogy? Because I, I know some people out there that would go, look, those are kind of opposite ways of viewing the world. If you've been negatively negatively impacted by, by those, you can learn on how to use them in a more friendly manner. I live my life on attempting to be culturally sensitive because of the experiences that I've had. Mm-hmm. But I've been trained, I'm a trained practitioner of using data, Doug Reeves' work. I think it's a skill. Okay. And part of, I think, my job with Edgewood, but my job with my assistant principals, with my future leaders in my building, is to work around to try to get people to understand that you can make those connections. They're not mutually exclusive, no. in fact, in a role as a leader. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking about the fact that one of them is like quantitative. Mm-hmm. What is the, What are the numbers? And the other one's qualitative. Mm-hmm. So the quantitative helps you with the data. It helps you to know what's going on or to be able to name what's happening. But then the qualitative tells you what, why it is or how you could fix it or what you could do with it, too. What I'm hearing, though, too, is this, there's theory, culturally relevant pedagogy as this theory. And Jennifer, Mike, Brado, all of you, we're teaching it. But the student response to say, okay but show me it on the ground or talk to it. Mm-hmm. And our response is, you know what? That's really relevant. And in fact, I'm going to adjust my teaching plan so that we can be responsive and bring the idea of how does that manifest in practice? 
And how does that move forward? So you guys are modeling leadership. You're modeling how to get this pushed forward and not just giving this theoretical approach to, and, and it always bothered me to think about a theoretical approach to leadership. You know, we have to have some type of modeling. And the word that's popping into my head is change agent. Jennifer, do you think that, um, are you a change agent? <laughs> I believe in the ripple effect. <laughs> yes, I mean, we, we are only, we're only as good as um, how many marbles we're able to knock. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. A lot of times when I want to try to get to the student's passion about leadership and the change that they want to make, it goes back to the why of why why is it that they're doing what they're doing. In the introduction to ed leadership, that was one of the biggest push of, yes, you're in my class right now, but the why are you in the class? What is it that's driving you to make this change? And I think that the change agent then comes from the why behind it so that the students can think about, is it my own experience that's leading it? Is it what I see as a need? Or is it a combination of both and or where I want to see the, the district or the school go? So I feel like the why has come across different courses. And I feel like when the students are able to pick point on that and be able to name the why, that helps them understand the process or the change that they want to work on. And it also motivates them because it reminds them that the why is there. Absolutely. Spending copious amounts of time in the first several classes so that we have a foundation to go back on to make sure that each uh, member of the class is clear on their why. Because when your why is clear, your, your what has more meaning, has more purpose. You're able to constantly move forward with very definitive direction. And when you have so many distractions coming at you from every single direction in leadership, if you are not solid in your core, if you don't stand for something or believe in something or have that really clearly developed why, you will be blown all over and will become fodder for anything. As instructors, also being able to individualize our instruction mm -hmm. in the moment because of knowing their whys. You mentioned building the relationship with the students to understand their why, but then also understanding how that's going to create a community yeah. of learners in the classroom and how they're going to be able to use each other as support. That I think that it's something that I've been really amazed to see class after class, that they built on each other and they knowing each other's whys helps them push each other as well and kind of like motivate them to go further and, and they're change agents. I really think that the greatest gift that we can get from uh, having this experience in terms of uh, facilitating learners at, through, through Edgewood has been, so the class finished mm -hmm. and there were eight people in my class and I have heard from every single one of them <laughs> in the last three months. <laughs> and, and I have called two of them additionally to ask additional questions. We continue, it's about building that great network of practice. I keep mm -hmm. hearing that coming back and forth is is that the students are providing you all with learning opportunities yep. as much as you're doing it there and you know thinking about that as being the dean of the program it's like this is something really cool to imagine that it's not about a transfer of knowledge it's oh, a God, no. it's an exchange it's a community <laughs> yeah. it's discussion it's a pushing back it's a giving to it's a then feeding from all of those right you know it's it's just yeah. it's just wonderful i agree <laughs> mike if i'm in your class and i ask you that question and say like i'm gonna try this class out i'm not sure i want to be a principal because i've seen principals and it just seems way too challenging of work do you acknowledge that challenge or do you say i mean how do you talk to me well challenge accepted right i mean okay. i hear that it's what you put into it 
right? It, where can you be the biggest agent of change? Going this through this program, it might not mean you're going to be a principal. It might mean you might be a different type of, and I'm using quotation, leader, mm-hmm. but you want to understand the system. You can't change the system unless you understand it. Any agent of change will tell you that. This is an opportunity to learn. And if, in fact, you decide this is, hey, this might be my gig, now we've helped you with the skills to get in and then make change in systems, in structures, in public schools, in whatever. That's the way I'm talking to to people. I've recruited several people in just saying, hey, I see something in you. I think you could do a great job, but now we're going to help you figure out your skill sets to see if you can do that. Uh, When I first started leadership work, I thought that I naively came in with a series of checkboxes that I was going to work my way through and very quickly learned that while there is comfort in tasks and um, in special education, oftentimes we have a lot of compliance, but you are never going to change outcomes through compliance activities. So those pieces that might sometimes be, you feel accomplished, I've done something, I've you know, checked this for compliance, or I've met this requirement. Uh, the danger is that that's not the work, that's something that you do, uh, that's not the work. The work is changing the outcomes and uh, helping to build the and and inspire the efficacy of our teachers that are working with our students every day to recognize that every single one of our students is capable of achieving great and things. We're talking about children here now, children mm-hmm. in the classroom, right? Mm-hmm. So is the challenge then to keep reminding yourself it's not about compliance? The, ch- the challenge is that the, the to remind myself that the work is never done. This is a marathon, not a sprint, that I have to be aware of and help my team be aware of the incremental wins, the incremental positive steps forward when we are working, especially doing social justice and equity work within the context of really complex social issues. The wins, the steps forward sometimes are so hard to find that it's my job and it's super important to make sure that I continue to help highlight the bright spots and not become overwhelmed and discouraged by the continued challenge. This is the greatest work that there is to do. It will have the greatest impact, I believe, on building the next public, but it doesn't happen overnight. And what I will see um, when I think back on my career and having happened from point A until the end point is going to be very, very small. And knowing that that's okay because of the ripple effect. Yeah, I think for me, as, as you mentioned the question, the two stories came to mind from students that will be graduating this May from our program. And the first time that they met with me, they're like, hey, Gerardo, I'm not sure if I want to be a principal, but I kind of just want to try start taking those classes to see how it is. And recently in the in the class that we taught together, um, the student came to me and he's like, you know what, the first meeting that it was, I was not sure I wanted to be a, a, a leader in a principal. And, but then after going through the program, now I'm convinced that I'm ready to go out there and be that change that I want to see in the world. Well, that, that's the new word really cool. of today's there, Mike. You threw it out there, change agents. And so change agents, um, thinking about that as a challenge, but it's also something to step up into and recognize. So we did ripple effect in episode one and how powerful that is. And I think this idea, even though we talked about equity, inequity, culturally relevant and the challenges, however, the idea of being a change agent is something that is going to be really exciting if you're a student out there thinking, yeah, I think I want to dig into this principalship. So great talking to you again. I look forward to episode three where we're going to talk about 
the future of ed leadership. Is it changing or is it something that stays the same and you can always just look back at a script and figure it out? And Mike, you've done it for 17 years particularly. You can even talk about has it changed for you over 17 years. So next time we get back, episode three, how is the job of a principal or an education leader changing? Episode three, it's a matter of principles. Challenge accepted or interested in finding out more about the education leadership program at Edgewood College? Call Joanne Eastman at 608-663-3250 or send her an email jeastman at edgewood.edu. And please hit the subscribe button so you always know when it's time to check out the next episode of A Matter of Principles from the School of Education at Edgewood College.